Most Sundays, when I stand before you, the first thing I ask you to do is take your Bibles and turn to a passage of Scripture. I do that so that we recognize the importance of God's Word. I also do it so that we are invited to join God in a study of His truth and interact with Him as we recognize what His truth says for our lives. We want to investigate what the Word has to say so that we can apply it in our circumstances of life. The text that is before us this morning is part of God's Word. And when you preach expositorily, that means you work your way from passage to passage. Scripture, sometimes you get to some difficult passages that you have to deal with. I'm going to encourage you this morning to pay close attention. Perhaps even take notes. Because that which is before us today can be a passage that in the very least may make us uncomfortable. And at the very worst, could cause division in our lives. That said, I want to begin this morning with a prayer, a prayer that I have printed so that you can pray it with me. And that prayer is simply this, that Calvary Baptist would be the kind of loving, caring, gracious family that is willing to stand for the truth of God's Word. As we work our way through our text this morning, I think that prayer will become apparent. Will you bow with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is truth. It is a quick and powerful and sharp two-edged sword that penetrates our hearts and our lives, sometimes causing us discomfort, sometimes causing us to doubt a holy, loving, gracious God and how His truth applies to our lives. And so this morning, I pray that we as a church family would be the kind of loving, caring, gracious body of believers that are willing to stand for the truth of Your Word. Minister to us this morning. Apply your truth by your spirit to our hearts and minds. And work in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy, will you please? 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. There are many pressures in pastoral ministry. One of which is that Sunday's always coming. Yesterday, Preston was in the office, and he and I had a little conversation. And he says, I don't know how you do it with multiple message preps. And sometimes the pressure of ministry makes it very difficult to get all of the preps done so that you can present God's Word in an effective 
way. The realities of discipleship. Sometimes the reality of meeting people's expectations, however unrealistic they may be, can be a pressure. Helping people live out the stuff of life and being an example to the believers of how that can be done even under the pressures of life itself. Then there's those meetings, those wonderful committees, those boards, and sometimes that's spelled B-O-R-E-D. The vision casting, the leadership, all part of ministry. But the most difficult ministry assignment that I have is dealing with people who are living in sin, who are unwilling to repent and change in their behavior. And coming alongside folks and helping them recognize what the Word says and then how that applies to their lives and what repentance must take place if they're going to live according to God's truth. Now, sometimes when I approach people with that, I get pushback. Some people will say, well, you need to look at John chapter 4, where Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Someone else may say, you need to look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. Or there are those who would come at me and say, well, doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? But the reality is, you and I as children of God are to be obedient children of God. Not fashioning ourselves according to our former lusts and our ignorance, but as he who has called us is holy, so we are to be holy in all manner of of life. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light. Because first John tells us that's where we find fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. John says if you say you have no sin you deceive yourselves and the truth's not in you but if you confess your sin see your sin like God sees it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I recognize my responsibility. For Ephesians 4 says that he gave some apostles and prophets and some pastors in teaching for the equipping of the saints, for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the building up of the body, for the speaking of the truth in love. Which takes us to our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Are you there? Look with me beginning in the second part of verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
Here's the big picture. The take-home truth, if you will. For believers, God has given us a pattern for repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. Or in extreme cases, for removal from a church family. God has given to us a pattern so that we might be restored. But Paul here said Hymenius and Alexander were unwilling to be restored. And Paul handed them over to Satan. And that is a sad, sad, sad thing. First Timothy chapter 1. We look at the conduct of Hymenius and Alexander, and we're not going to spend a lot of time in the text, because I, I want to make sure that we get to how we handle Christian disputes and then what church discipline really looks like. But as I read, it says, by rejecting this, now stop right there and ask yourself, what is the this? Paul told Timothy that he was to be an example of the believers, and he was to wage a good warfare, verse 19 at the beginning, holding faith and a good conscience. The this is that Hymenius and Alexander had rejected the faith. Jude tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And the faith can be equated with God's truth. When you reject God's truth, you get yourself in problems. When you run away from the faith, you find yourself in a place of God's discipline. And when you violate the truth of Scripture, you discover very quickly that you cannot be blessed by God. And so Paul writing says, by rejecting the faith... Hymenius and Alexander were made shipwreck. You know, shipwrecks are tragedies. We live in the Great Lakes state. And some have said that the Great Lakes have claimed more ships than any other group of waters in the world. Perhaps you're familiar with the Edwin Fitzgerald that broke apart in Lake Superior and doomed its whole crew. Paul knew something about shipwrecks. You could go to Acts chapter 27 and discover how Paul was involved in a shipwreck. And it was not a pleasant deal. A storm came up and the sailors tried to anchor the boat, but anchors would not hold. And so it was bringing being broken apart. And there were prisoners, Paul included on that ship, and the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners lest they escaped. And Paul said, don't kill them. They're not going anyplace. And they found themselves in the Mediterranean Sea and ended up on a little island called Miletus. Shipwrecks are. Terrible, terrible things. But Paul 
describes Hymenius and Alexander as putting themselves in a terrible, terrible place where there wasn't anything left. Now, Hymenius is also mentioned over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 with another man by the name of Philetus. Alexander may be mentioned over in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he is called Alexander the coppersmith. We don't know. But we do know that these men had violated the truth of Scripture and found themselves in deep, dark places. And what did Paul say happened to them? The last part of verse 20 is a sad, sad commentary where Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Shipwrecked faith. May I quickly share with you two lessons that we should learn about shipwrecked faith? Lesson number one is this. There are consequences to our actions. Paul here says that they may learn not to blaspheme. That means slander God, misrepresent His truth, violate His standard. And there are consequences for our lives when we misrepresent the truth of God, when we violate His standard, when we go against what He tells us to do in our lives. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is not part of the text, but it's an important lesson, and that's this, that you and I are constantly aware of this danger in our lives. Will you turn a page, please, and look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 with me? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. When we discover that someone has been shipwrecked, you and I need to learn not to go there. And we need to recognize the lesson that they teach us concerning the consequences that could very easily be part of our lives. We're having a great time on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights, we are studying the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, there are four men that are described, four individuals. There's the wise man. There is the simple man. There is the scoffer or mocker. And there's the fool. Now, we can all understand what a wise man does. He follows biblical truth. He understands an authority in his life. Gentlemen, you were very wise if you did something for your significant other last 
Friday. Now, my wife and I had agreed, no cards, no gifts. She gave me a card. I gave her a gift. (laughs) The wise individual. Then there's the simple individual who is simply naive. It's somebody who is a follower. It's someone who really can't make a decision on their own. It's someone who is looking to others to understand how to live life. Then there's the mocker. The mocker is the one who makes fun of right. Those who make fun of individuals who are trying to live out truth. And then there's a fool. Do you know who the fool is? He's just a fool. Living life any way he wants without any recognition of consequence. When we look at Hymenius and Alexander, it is pretty easy to see that these who were shipwrecked in their faith determined that the authority of God's word was not important in their lives. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? So what do we do? How how do we handle this? We're going to look at several passages of Scripture this morning that I trust will will help us. And I hope that we are able to take these passages of Scripture and apply them to our lives. Turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Will you please? Matthew chapter 5. What do you do when there are Christian disputes? What do you do when you find sin in a brother or sister's life? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, helps us understand what we should do. Verse 23, you there? So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you see how important it is that we get our interpersonal relationships right? We cannot worship properly unless we have proper interpersonal relationships. If you know that your brother has something against you, Go, get it handled, and then come back and worship and praise God for his faithfulness. Amen? But what if it's the other way around? What if you have something against your brother? Go to Matthew chapter 18, will you please? Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now stop right there, please. If you have something against a brother or sister in Christ, the scripture says, go get it handled between you and them. Keep it within the sphere of influence that it deserves. If that doesn't work, take somebody with you. So at the mouth of two or three witnesses, you can establish the issue. And you can deal with it. Now there are four principles that are very important as we think about these interpersonal relationships, as we think about these Christian disputes. Principle number one is go. It's always your turn. If your brother has something against you, you can't worship properly. Go get it handled. If you have something against a brother, it's important that you get it dealt with. Go. It's always your turn. May I share with you this morning that there's no excuses or exceptions in this? Well, I'd go, but I'm afraid I might say something I don't want to say. Your brother or sister may have no clue. Well, I'd go, but I don't want to cause any problems. If you're going to worship properly, you have to go. Well, I'd go, but uh, I don't know when I'd do it. How important is your relationship with God? This is biblical truth, right? If it's biblical truth, then you have to go. No exceptions. Number two. Not only should we go, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, get the log out of your eye. Self-examination is part of this whole process. And you cannot get a toothpick out of somebody else's eye when you got a big log sticking in your eye. So self-examination is all part of this process. It's not your fault all the time. You made me do that. You caused this in my life. We need to step back and say, all right, what do I need to learn from this? What issues do I need to deal with? What kind of things should I be aware of? Number three, be gentle. Gently restore. We will not look at it this morning, but mark it down. It's in your life application notes. Galatians chapter 6 says, you who are spiritual, gently restore. I love it when somebody comes and puts their arms around me. Isn't that wonderful? Do you like hugs? Because folks, we're all in this thing together. We all have the same goal, and that is the fourth truth, and that is to glorify God. And so, therefore, when we are handling these issues, we need to recognize that God has forgiven us a whole bunch of stuff. 
And because of that, shouldn't we forgive each other? I love Ephesians chapter 4. And the last verse of chapter 4 is verse 32, and it says this. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here's the kicker. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And when you and I stack ourselves up against a holy God, we discover pretty quickly we ain't so hot. And if God has forgiven us all of this stuff, shouldn't we be able to get it right within each other's lives? In these instances... The goal is repentance and restoration of a relationship that brings honor and glory to our God. Amen? And when you find yourself in tension with another believer and can get that right, God is the one who gets all the glory. Amen? But what happens if it cannot be handled in a small circle? Are you still in Matthew chapter 18? Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three witnesses, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the assembly of believers, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? It means that if there is an individual to whom you have gone with self-evaluation and gently put your arms around them in order to glorify God, if they still refuse, it affects the whole assembly and becomes an assembly matter. And if they still refuse, here Jesus says, Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul put it this way, you hand them over to Satan. You take them out of the protective umbrella of the church and you treat them, treat them like an unbeliever because they are unwilling to follow the principles of God's word. And every believer is willing to follow the principles of the word of God if they're true believers. I have done some work on church discipline. And I have made a few copies of some of the work that I've done. It's called The Theology of Church Discipline, if you're interested. I will leave these up on the, on the front. If you would like to pick up one after the service, and if we run out, we can print some more. But this is a tough subject. It's Scripture, but it's still difficult. Let me say this. Church discipline 
should not be invoked just for committing a specific sin. We are all sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. Church discipline takes place when a child of God rejects the authority of the Word of God and the authority of the church of God and refuses to repent. That is, have a change of mind and heart and direction. Repent of their sin and be reconciled. That is, brought back into full fellowship through confession and repentance with the body of believers to whom they are committed. Here Jesus says, if they refuse to hear, you treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Paul, in our text this morning, said, turn them over to Satan. He also said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll get to those two in just a minute. So when should church discipline take place? Let me give you three reasons for church discipline. The first reason is discovered here in our text in Matthew chapter 18. And it's when there are irreconcilable violations of Christian love. Unresolved disputes. When you go to a brother and sister in Christ in love and say, you know, something's not right, let's get this handled. And when there is a refusal to handle it, it becomes a church issue, a body issue, because it affects the whole body. And you know what will happen? Some people will take this side, and some people will take that side, and it divides the body of Christ. This is critical, folks. That's why it's so important that we deal with stuff. And may I remind you that the sooner you deal with it, the better off you're going to be. This is not fine wine. Oops, maybe I should have said fine cheese. That gets better with age. This is garbage. That the longer it sits around, the ranker it gets. Unresolved disputes. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, will you please? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a second reason for church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I hear the rustling of the leaves. That's a good thing. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this in text. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, writes Paul, and as if present, I am already pronounced, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The second reason for church discipline is this, unrepentant sinful conduct. And in the text, it is sexual sin. Now, the believers at Corinth are not a body that you want to pattern a church after. They were a carnal body. And they thought they were just being loving to let it all slide. Paul said they were just being arrogant because not even the pagans endorse this kind of behavior. And there are times when there is unrepentant sinful conduct that the church has to step in and remove someone from the body. There's a third reason for church discipline, and I will take you back to our 1 Timothy text. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to end right where we started. Hymenius and Alexander. were apparently teaching a different doctrine. They had wandered away, and Paul says in our text that they had rejected the faith. The third reason for church discipline is this, false doctrine. There are those who would cling to a false understanding of God's word and teach it as truth. And that's what Hymenius and Alexander were doing. And so there is a time in which a church must take action when someone is teaching false doctrine. Now you would hope that that could get handled interpersonally, wouldn't you? You would hope that by going to someone and sharing with them and saying, hey, brother, I don't understand what you just taught. Let's look at the Scriptures together and handle it that way. But if false doctrine persists, a church body must do exactly what Paul did. Hand them over to Satan. Remove them from the authority of the local assembly of believers. So what truths do we take home? Boy, this is a tough message, isn't it? So what truths do we take home? For believers, here it is. If repentance and reconciliation does take place, 
they are to be restored. Thank you. Amen. That's a good thing. And even after perhaps church discipline has taken place, someone repents and wants to be restored to the body, that can happen. In the last eight years, it's happened once here at Calvary. Amen. Praise God. I hope this gets you excited. And you continue to work, and you continue to love, and you continue to show grace, and you continue to to teach truth. And finally, people get it. That's a good thing. But the sad reality is this. That sometimes that doesn't happen. And for professing believers, and I use that term because possessing believers understand truth. For professing believers, if repentance, reconciliation, and restoration does not take place, they're to be removed and released to Satan. Now, that's what Scripture says. It's not easy. May I go back to the prayer we prayed at the beginning of our time together? This is not an inconsistent prayer. But that Calvary would be the kind of loving, caring, gracious family that is willing to stand for the truth of God's Word.